What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I am delighted to be joined by Ellen Brown. She is an attorney, founder of the Public Banking Institute, and the author of 12 books, including the best-selling Web of Debt. Thank you so much for joining, Ellen. Uh, thank you, Sylvia. Always great to talk to you. Thank you. Now, in your book, uh, Web of Debt, you have a beautiful um, introduction. You say, through a network of anonymous financial spider webbing, only a handful of global king bankers own and control it all. Everybody, people, enterprise, state, and foreign countries all have become slaves chained to the banker's credit rope. You referred to this web of debt, you know, and so can we talk a little bit about the significance of the banking system and the world of turmoil we live in today? Yeah, uh, well, it's becoming particularly obvious in this crisis, uh, the great divide. Be, um, is supposedly what we're having is a race war in the U.S. or a war between the police and um you know, Black Lives Matter and races in general. But what it really is, obviously, is a class war. It's clearly the rich are getting richer. The stock market is just keeps shooting up and up. And meanwhile, we've got people's, you know, in the inner cities, their businesses are burned down and, and businesses of all colors. I mean, it doesn't seem to be particularly an attack on blacks or, uh, or African-Americans. So we're just seeing that the whole bailout has gone to the rich. The reason the stock market's going up is because the uh, the Federal Reserve is pumping it up. It's pumped out trillions of dollars. Uh, at least, you know, potentially it's got 4.5 trillion now available for for these uh, special purpose vehicles, and the money will go to big corporations. Um, and then we had the three trillion dollar bailout, but not much of it is going, you know, that's a bailout from Congress, but not much of it is going to um, to the people. It's largely going to big corporations again. It's the whole banking system that just got bailed out that the uh, central bank used that as an excuse to bail out the banks once again. We said in 2008 that, uh, you know, the next time we should nationalize the banks because it obviously didn't work to just bail them out and let them go on their merry way. Uh, but there is, hasn't been a next time. We didn't get a chance to vote. The, the Congress didn't get a chance to put their two cents in. The Fed just stepped in 
and use this virus as an excuse to uh, open up its uh, discount window to all the banks virtually, you know, borrow for free, zero to zero point two five percent. So that's where they get their liquidity. Actually, my first ten books were on health and alternative health care, and then I got into the politics of health and the politics of the cancer industry. And I could see at some point that it was all just one big cartel, the banks and the medical system, uh, the pharmaceutical companies were controlling the shots, and that they that all went back down back to this, you know, Rockefeller cartel, which was oil and and um, oil-based pharmaceuticals. They basically stole the market from the homeopaths. Um, I, so I wrote about all that, so I was aware of all that. I think it's really uh, important that you point out that we are in the middle of a class warfare. And, um, and you know, it, it, racism has always been part of the water we swim in. You know, sexism has always been there. Um, patriarchy is something we're all very familiar with. But you also write in your book, book about how we went from a matriarchy of abundance to a patriarchy of debt. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, 5,000 years ago, which was the Sumerian culture, which was our first ever written language, so that's the first written history we have, that was a matriarchal society. Under the matriarchal system, it would be the government or the community or the people collectively who would be issuing the money. And uh, it would go back to the people, it would serve the people. And then it became privatized under the patriarchal system. Uh, capitalism came in. I, I mean, if you go as, go to you know Greece and Rome, then that's where the private bankers came in, the private lenders. Then you could no longer do a jet, debt jubilee. The government couldn't just say, all right, we're going to forgive all the debts because the debts were privately issued. And that would have at least bankrupted the the creditors. So we need to go back to this system of, I don't want to use the word collective because it has such a bad connotation, but the system where we recognize that we're all connected and we've got to support the whole, even just looking at a practical level, you've got to have some customers if you're going to have a bit, have businesses. In order to keep the economy running, you've got to get some money out there and you've got to get it into the pockets of the people, not just of big businesses. It doesn't trickle down from the from the rich to the poor. I remember somebody told me this story of his uh, five-year-old granddaughter. He was playing uh, playing Monopoly with her and she had all she had all the money and he was getting bored with it and he says, "Well, I'm out, you know, you've got all the money." So she so she took half the money and gave it to him. And the moral of the story being that even a 5-year-old knows that if you want to keep the game going, you've got to you know, share the money around so that people have some, some chips to play with. Seeing that the Federal Reserve can, if it wants to, just create trillions of dollars on its books. But the problem was they've crea- created the trillions of dollars for the rich. Yeah. They they gave all that into the charge at BlackRock, which is uh, in the world's largest asset manager, and the first thing BlackRock did was bail out the ETFs, the exchange-traded funds, half of which were owned by BlackRock. So the first thing it did was bail out itself. And you could argue that it was the exchange-traded funds that were originally in trouble last July. That's a long story. But then when – so in September, that was the first that we knew there, were, there was big trouble in the markets when the repo market, the interest rates suddenly shot up to 10%. 
And the repo market's actually where the banks borrow these days because after 2008, they're afraid to borrow from each other because they don't know who's got the money and who can't pay up. So they turn to the repo market, and now the repo market's untrustworthy, and so the, the money market funds were pulling out the lenders because they didn't want to be lending to the hedge funds so, that had taken over the repo market. But meanwhile, the banks were borrowing at the repo, in the repo market, so the Fed had to step in. They became the repo lender of last resort, and by March, they were fronting a trillion dollars a day for the repo market, and that was unsustainable. So they just used the excuse of this virus to do this huge bailout for the banks and say, okay, free credit, just come to the discount window. Any bank in good standing can come here and borrow. Seeing what can be done, we've seen that you can make credit free. You could, uh, uh, if we had some public banks, the public banks could have free credit and get free credit at the at the discount window at the Fed. We could have bank accounts at the Fed, so we wouldn't have to worry about this uh, $250,000 limit that drives the big money market funds, et cetera, into the repo market. They could all, we could all be banking at the Fed. I mean, you could envision how you could re redo the whole system, and now that looks possible because they've shown that all those old myths, like you can't just print money, you'll you'll destroy the economy. One thing you're pointing out is this um, very um, apropos practice of printing money when whenever it suits the government to do so in the interests of elites. Um, throughout Latin America, we've seen many invasions from US, from the US Army and military. Some of them have been very violent and bloodied. But there's a different kind of invasion as well, an economic invasion where, you know, with the switch, they can shut down an entire economy as they did in Argentina. So let's talk about the importance of countries having their own currency and what it means for their independence to, to own their own currency. They should and could issue their own currencies and pay their debts in their own currencies. That's what we do in the U.S. You know, we're not going to go into hyperinflation like Weimar Germany and uh, Zimbabwe from the central bank printing money. Where that system particularly works well is if you're using the money for productive purposes. I mean, what they're doing right now where they're basically using it for the speculative financialized market will uh, inflate that market. But, of course, the people in that market don't care. They're perfectly happy to see their stocks go up and their real estate go, go up. But it makes this greater and greater divide between rich and poor. But anyway, the reason that uh, Latin America countries can't do it is that if they need to borrow, let's say there are resources that they don't have in their own country and they need to buy them from some other country, and the other country just won't take their currency. That's a problem. You've got to have a currency that everybody will take. You've got to have the power to issue a currency that your creditors are willing to accept. And so they've been been sort of forced to first borrow from American banks, American or British, you know, the big the big currencies and the big reserve currencies. And then, worst possible case, they wind up agreeing to pay the IMF and, the you know, borrowing from the IMF. And then the IMF has all these strings attached to the loans. They've got to go into austerity. They've got to lay people off. They've got to sell off their, their public assets all in the 
name of supposedly balancing their books and getting their economy going again, but the, all that stuff doesn't hurt, help the economy. It actually hurts the economy, as we have seen. So it's really just a form of slavery, of enslaving those people. And ideally, they would issue their own money and just keep it all local and do everything locally and you know just get by with what they have locally. But in this day and age, it's probably not going to happen where you've got all this electronic, you know, things that are just People aren't happy with just the local sort of village life that they used to have that was self-contained where where you could do that issue your own money. So I'm not sure what the answer to that is. But The point I was trying to make is the importance of having currency equates also with um, a level of freedom to own, you know, a, a productive economy. And in the States, we've seen the examples in a, a state where they have a public banking. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about... Um, the the ability to remain solvent when you own your own banks when you are, when you do use your banks for productive purposes rather than simply to participate in a in an upscaling of oppression and exploitation of your population and of the resources of your land or the biggest public banking system in the in the world right now is in China, 80% of their banking assets are owned by the state. So what the state does, now that we know that banks just create money on their books, they don't actually lend their deposits, which is a totally different subject, but uh, what what they can do in China or another, another country that owns its own banks is borrow from their state-owned bank which creates the money on its book, you know, one of their big development banks, and then use that credit to rebuild, to build things like uh, high-speed rail and then the the, um, the proceeds from the railroad go to pay off the loan. And that's the way the system should work, that money should be an advance against your future promise to repay, and then whatever it is that you're going to do with the money should make money so that you you know so that you can pay the loan back and that and that is a sustainable system. Roosevelt did that during the 1930s through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation which wasn't technically a bank but that's what it did it just lent to every everything productive any form of self-funding loan uh so farms and railroads and power uh, uh you know energy sources dams that sort of thing uh, they lent to you, and they re- rebuilt the whole country. And they, at the time, you know, nobody had money. It was a time when the the banks were bankrupt, and still they just by issuing credit, which was then paid back with the proceeds of the loan, they got the the country rolling again. And Canada had an excellent system from um, 1935 to 19 mid 70s, I think, when. Um, probably made the mistake of joining the uh, Bank for International Settlements, which at that time decided to pronounce that governments shouldn't be issuing their own money and they shouldn't be borrowing their own from their own central banks, that they should be borrowing on the private market. Uh, Supposedly, that was the reason we had stagflation, but we really had stagflation for other reasons. That's where, where you have inflation in the prices, but you don't have... The economy is not booming, but the prices are still going up, and that was called stagflation. And they thought it was because governments were printing their own money, but it was really 
a number of reasons, but that was when the dollar went off the gold standard. So anyway, it's a whole Henry Kissinger, well, Nixon sort of plot. And I would the, argue that the whole of uh, Latin America has been forced into stagflation, where you have people working now and so-called earning dollars, right? But at the same level that they would have if they were earning pesos. And, you know what I mean? So you have people in El Salvador where the basket, you know, um, the subsistence basket may be $280, but people are earning $40, $80 a month. And so how do you justify it, right, that, that level of inequality and injustice? And one is that they have this very uh, rigid um, IMF loans that they have to pay, right? And so a lot of these so-called loans that they owe are odious money, right? They, they were imposed for yep. declaring themselves free to have a river free of another dam. You know, the, the Salvadorian River, the main source of water, has been dammed so many times that by the time it gets to the ocean, it's just a trickle of water going in. And so we have the least amount of water in the whole region. If you pull the pieces back, you can see how the war was funded by U.S. dollars. You know, the Constitution that was rewritten in the 1990s was solely in favor of mining companies, and you had key brokers from Canada and also the U.S. And now that we have a currency that is in the form of the dollar, the people are starving. This is even worse than during the war years. Like, there's so much uh, insecurity, unrest, violence. And, and you're right, it is a class war, more than a, you know, but racism plays a key role. And all of these institutionalized ways of oppressing contribute to us maintaining, you know, this story that those in power get to make all the rules and those with power get to tell us how we run. So if those out of power, not in power, if we could get in power, we could redo the system in a way that was equitable. I mean, I think what what people need is a safety net. That's So that would be universal basic income and, um, you know, a public banking system, including postal banking, et cetera, and a place to get your checks and a place to transact and all that. With the, so we could have, like, credit cards that were virtually interest-free, that sort of thing where where you're you're um, actually monetizing your future promise to repay, which is what credit should be. So the problem is, how do we get into power? But in Ecuador, for example, they were issuing uh, digital dollars, like U.S. dollars, which was would have worked. It was a very very good idea, really. It's kind of like euro dollars, which are really just created on the books. But then I don't know what happened. You know, the government changed. It got very neoliberal again, and. And that all kind of faded away. I mean, it seems like every time there's an attempt for a Latin American country or, say, um, Venezuela, where th that worked out very well for a while, where they nationalized the biggest banks and uh, were actually making the banks serve the people for a change. Uh, I think Costa Rica probably still has the, the best system, but they keep a low profile, kind of like the Bank of North Dakota. If you if you want to have a good system, don't have any resources that anybody else wants and keep a low, low profile if you want to get away with it. But it seems to me that's the problem is we, the big powers go in and when they see anybody that's exploitable, they exploit and it's difficult for us to get control. But but maybe at this time of change and crisis and, you know, shakeup, 
crises are when change happens. So that's why I write and speak in the hope of, you know, getting some new, you know, theories out there, possibilities. I, I would say that um, perhaps because Venezuela nationalized so many of the resources, they have been able to withstand the constant, um, you know, military, economic, and, um, you know, interventions by the U.S. in recent years, including, the, you know, this new sanctions, right, that they have imposed in the time of pandemic. But I want to focus a little bit on what we in the North can do because we, we really need to change the world by doing something where we are. And one of the things that you have highlighted is that we are prime for a movement towards a universal income. And can you talk a about what this would mean and how it would not only allow us to, um, you know, break with this class war, but perhaps co-create the foundations for a, a, a system that we can all envision to have more justice and, and, and to be a productive system for all of us? The argument against the universal basic income has always been, oh, you can't do that. That'll be um, inflationary. You're just pouring money into the system, and it's not it's not a debt. You know, people don't have to pay it back, and so it's you're just pumping the system up. But that's not actually true, and that's what I've written about. Banks create our money supply. They create the principal, but they don't create the interest. So you've always got debt growing faster than the money supply. It used to be you could do a debt jubilee periodically and get rid of that gap, but uh, we can't do that anymore because now the lenders are private, as aforesaid. So we need to fill that gap in some way, and what we can, can do is just by put more money in it. That's one reason there's a gap. Another reason is that not everybody who gets some of that money spends it. That you know, Say you're paying your workers with the borrowed money that you borrow from the bank, and then the workers save it or invest it somewhere or whatever, you know, where it's not going to come back into the local economy. So that's a second reason. And the third reason is that we really have two economies. And so most of the money trickles up, it trickles into the financialized economy, and it doesn't come back to the real economy. So even though the financialized economy is inflating, stock markets going up, real estate's going up, etc. Um, the consumer market is not going up because rich people can only spend so much you know they can only wear so many shoes or eat so much food they're not they're not in that market they're with their trillion or billions they're uh, buying off politicians or buying islands somewhere or they've got their money in offshore tax havens or whatever it's big things that aren't related to our little local consumer economy so we need more money in the consumer economy and the best way to get it there, the most equitable way, is to drop it right into the pockets of the people. Well, it turns out the gap between incomes and the average basic cost of living is $1,200 a month. So you could pay that every month, and you would just be filling that gap. You wouldn't be um, you know, inflating. So, and the money, that, to the extent that people use it to pay down debt, 80% of people are in debt, and so money that went to pay down debt would be extinguished. Money is created as a loan, and it's extinguished when the debt loan is paid off. So that money would just disappear. And then the money that went to rich people, of whom there really aren't that many, I mean, they're very rich, but in terms of numbers, there aren't that many, um, that money isn't going to go into the consumer economy. They've got all the consumer goods they need. And and so the bit that did go into the consumer economy would uh, 
stimulate production. It would uh, put people back to work. The, the first thing companies do if they have more demand for their products, they don't raise their prices. They make more products. They order more from the factory, and then the factory makes some more and hires more people, and that's what gets the economy going. So that's what we need to do is an equitable feeding of liquidity into the pockets of the people. I saw an article that said that, well, we've already got that because we're paying unemployment insurance to all these people. But that's a totally different thing. First of all, unemployment insurance, you're not allowed to work if you're getting that. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a dividend, a supplement to your income that just gives you a social safety net so that all those people that can't come up with $400 in an emergency or 600 or whatever it was, will can save a little bit and that's what they would do with this supplement you know they, they're not going to go out and spend it probably they're going to save it most importantly i think it's really clear to see how during this pandemic in canada for instance the government has been issuing um, payments to people but the key requisite is that people be laid off right so if you were not if you're still being considered so-called essential you know in the case of people who serve food or uh, who uh, work at grocery stores, even if their conditions were terrible, even if they were exposed and most vulnerable, they cannot with you know withhold their services. So, and uh, yeah. universal income simply allows those people to have options, right? And and so that's right. a more equitable society because you can have your basic income, or you can choose to have your basic income plus go to work. And many people yeah, would choose or, that, but that's and a if you hate your job, you can live on uh, you know at starving student level wages for a while and yeah. and look around for something else. Like my son did that. You know, kids could do that. He had a little savings, hated his job, and so he um, you know just just lived on his savings for two years while he learned coding, which is what he really likes. You know, computer coding, and now he's really happy. And you know, he found a job he really enjoys. So, but that gave him a cushion, you know, having being able to live for a thousand dollars a month, which is actually what he lived on. And for a because while. because he had that option to be to to withhold doing a, an odious job that he did not get any satisfaction, um, and he had that creative time, that creative that's that's what we're buying with a universal income. I think is creativity. We're we're paying for a world where people can be more creative, more expansive in their imagination. And I think ultimately our liberation can only be as free as our imagination. So if we have a bigger imagination rather than just repeating the same oppressive structures that we have had for a hundred years, if we could just have a moment to think, which I think is part of the uh, capitalist and those elites, that were, and and you're right, there's very small number of them. So, if we just got this this practice of undervaluing our abilities, our our imagination, our ability to co-create something else. Um, we can get this done. And I think you're right. This is a very good time to do it because we've seen how easy it was for the, the banks, the government to print out money for bailing out banks. That money can also mm -hmm. be printed out to create a different society for people. D uh, definitely UBI, I think we need. But also just even to get very cheap credit instead of these 300% um, you know, payday loans that, that people are... are have to take or even like your 21% credit card 
which it's not even the interest rate on the credit card that's so bad. It's the fact that you're paying three or the merchant is paying three or four percent on every trade, and of course that increases increases prices. Yeah. So it, so besides free money to the people to up to a certain limit, we also need free credit to the people to, or very low cost credit, affordable credit, just like them, just like the big boys are getting. Thank you for all your work. Uh, creating that window of possibility, creating that window in our imagination to see what uh, a magical world it could be if we all realize we are interconnected, we are all interdependent, and we didn't, you know, we rely on each other to co-create a society where people have access to create, to envision, to imagine and to give form to their dreams. So thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Thank you, Sylvia. You put things so well. (laughs) Thank you again. How can people access your work? Uh, My website is ellenbrown.com, and that's got all my hundreds of articles on it. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an education consultant, an artist, author, For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.